Mitochondria are called the powerhouse of our human cells. And they are called the powerhouse of the cell because they synthesize the main energy molecule that the body uses. But when mitochondria fail to function properly, it's like... Literally just flipping the power switch off. If you take a cell and you switch its power source off, it's not going to function very well. On today's show, learn about mitochondrial disease. From research to better diagnose it. The diagnostic setup for detecting mitochondrial disease isn't even standard across hospitals across the U.S. To someone who has it. I feel I have no life anymore. It sucks. I'd rather be doing other stuff. Hear it all inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Bellmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighters Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. In order to better understand the focus of today's show, mitochondrial disease, it's important to first understand the function of mitochondria in our human cells. For this, we turn to Dr. Blake Hill, professor of biochemistry at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Approaching our topic first at a cellular level, Dr. Hill tells us that the mitochondria are often referred to as the powerhouse of our cells. And they are called the powerhouse of the cell because they synthesize the main energy molecule that the body uses, a small molecule called adenosine triphosphate, ATP. And it's this ATP in our cells that is the high energy molecule we need to do just about every function in life including muscle contraction, nerve impulses, and more. If you think of a cell being like a city, you have these buildings, you have trains and buses, factories. Those factories, those trains, those buses are all proteins. Proteins are the workhorses of the cell, and many of those processes require energy. And those processes require this molecule called ATP that is made in the mitochondria. He further explains that ATP is often referred to as energy currency. It's like the dollar bill, you know, you can pay for stuff with ATP. And the reason is ATP undergoes a favorable chemical reaction that releases a lot of energy. And so it's thought to be a high energy molecule. How do we make this high energy releasing molecule in our mitochondria? We make that in the mitochondria and by the stuff that we eat and we drive the production of a battery inside the mitochondria. And this is why we breathe oxygen. Oxygen accepts these electrons from the carbon that we eat and then becomes water 
that's used to make this battery and that battery is then used to make ATP. How much ATP does our body need each day to function? So if we didn't have mitochondria making ATP, we'd have to eat about 20 pounds of bread a day in order to stay alive. Because the mitochondria is so efficient at making ATP, we basically can survive on just a pound of bread a day. Dr. Hill says mitochondria are not only the powerhouse that produce energy, they also have the selective ability to shut a cell's power off. If you have a power plant and you want to kill a cell, the thing you'd probably do is unplug it. And so the cells have a natural process to commit suicide. And you'd be like, hold on, my cells have their own way of committing suicide. And the answer is yes, and it occurs at the mitochondria, at the powerhouse. But why would mitochondria choose to turn off the power in some cells? Dr. Hill gives an example. It's important in fighting disease because a mechanism of viral infection, the cell can sense that and they can commit suicide to try to save the organ and the body instead of letting the virus take over the cell's machinery and replicate. And that process occurs at the mitochondria. How many mitochondria are typically in a single cell? Some cells have no mitochondria and other cells are really chocked full of mitochondria depending on the energy needs. Which means a cell that has high energy needs has a lot. The estimate is every cell contains about 500 to 1,000 mitochondria. Your body is basically a container of mitochondria. You have billions of mitochondria. What's the structure of mitochondria? The classic textbook picture is this thing that looks like a kidney bean and has very elongated, highly elaborate structure internally, almost like a meshwork in some cell types. Are mitochondria only present in human cells? Oh no, they're present in all eukaryotes. So all cells that contain a nucleus, all plants, all mammals and animals have mitochondria. Well, there may be one example and possibly more, but primarily the definition of eukaryotic cell has always been it's one that has a nucleus and a mitochondria. So if something causes the mitochondria in our cells to produce less energy than needed, not good. Because you need that energy. You need that ATP. Why do mitochondria begin to fail in our cells? What's thought to happen is you get oxidative damage. That impairs mitochondria as they age. So there's this entire theory of mitochondria become damaged just through natural process of generating energy, and that's why we slow down with age. Conversely, as we'll learn next, some people are born with dysfunctional mitochondria. Now that we better understand how mitochondria are supposed to function, what happens when the powerhouse of our cells don't provide sufficient energy one needs, resulting in a diagnosis of mitochondrial disease? To find out, we spoke with Dr. Donald Basel, Section Chief and Associate Professor, Department of Pediatrics, Division of Genetics, at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and Medical Director of the Genetic Center at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. We begin by asking Dr. Basel for his simplest explanation of the very complex mitochondrial disease. I think the easiest way to think about that is literally just flipping the power switch off. If you take a cell and you switch its power source off, it's not going to function very well. He says the mitochondrial function of producing energy in cells can be significantly reduced or shut off completely. The degree to which you switch its power off obviously defines how much function is left in that cell. 
every cell has a specific function within the context of its own organ system and how well it's functioning depends on what we see from a clinical perspective. So with mitochondrial disease, what causes the mitochondria to become dysfunctional? When we think about mitochondrial disease, it's really a primary genetically linked etiology as opposed to sort of these multitudes of things that can impact overall function. Which is not to say there can't be environmental causes, there can, but Dr. Basel says don't believe everything you read on the internet. Uh, this is my soapbox speech. I think mitochondria get a really bad rap. And the truth is there are a few environmental causes which can impact mitochondrial function, but they're pretty specific. You'd have to be completely deficient of a certain nutrient, or you'd have to be exposed to certain drugs that can specifically impact mitochondrial function. So from an environmental perspective, it's pretty much a targeted thing. What messes with your mitochondria? Another common misconception is that Despite its name, it's not a singular disease, but rather... It's completely a spectrum of disease. There are certain named mitochondrial diseases, something like MELAS, for example. MELAS is a very specifically named mitochondrial syndrome, which is associated with metabolic crises, brain involvement, so the encephalopathy, episodes of lactic acidosis, and stroke. He shares a few others. If we're thinking about babies, Lee syndrome is one of those that people tend to recognize. From an adult onset, the progressive external ophthalmoplegia, which means that your eyes don't track normally. So all of these things can fit into a specific diagnosis. It's also important to understand that there can be mitochondrial dysfunction in a person's cells that aren't linked to mitochondrial disease. There are a handful of disorders, usually metabolic disorders, which can secondarily have a significant impact on mitochondrial function. Barth's disease is a classic example. That's one of the metabolic diseases associated with abnormal organic acid accumulation. And those patients can have significant mitochondrial dysfunction as well as a slew of other things. Approximately how many cases of mitochondrial disease are diagnosed in the U.S. today? It's about 11.5 per 100,000 in the United States. The frequency data is actually dependent on whereabouts in the world you are, but I think it's taken as an average about 1 in 8,500 individuals having some mitochondrial disorder is not unreasonable. And while individually each variety is relatively rare, collectively... The total number of patients with some form of it makes mitochondrial disease not so rare. No. And that's actually the mantra for rare diseases. So when we talk about rare or orphan diseases, we often talk about them as being one in a million cases. But actually, if you take all of those one in a million cases and put them all together, we suddenly have a relatively common problem. And the same applies to the mitochondrial spectrum. It's also possible, maybe even likely, that there are more cases that are undiagnosed. There are definitely patients who have remained undiagnosed for some time, and as our molecular technology improves, we're identifying more and more causes for some of these mitochondrial diseases. So there are individuals who clinically fit the realm of mitochondrial disease but don't have a specific diagnosis. Dr. Basel adds that mitochondrial diseases on the milder end of the spectrum are particularly challenging to diagnose. As diagnosticians, I'm physicians, we always see the worst case and we diagnose those cases first. And then as our understanding improves, we begin to see the other variants of that particular disorder. So there are probably a lot of milder mitochondrial dysfunctions that are out there. In fact, there's one mitochondrial disease that we're all likely to face one day. 
Dr. Blake Hill alluded to it earlier. So this is entire theory of mitochondria become damaged just through natural process of generating energy, and that's why we slow down with age. And Dr. Basel confirms it. Aging is a mitochondrial disease. As we get older, our mitochondria become less and less functional. So over time, we essentially start switching off cellular function. When is mitochondrial disease commonly diagnosed? Dr. Basel says that can depend on who you ask. So if you're speaking to a pediatrician, he'll tell you, yes, of course, <laughs> we diagnose these conditions in childhood. But the reality is that there's a really even spread across the entire age range where you can have certain mitochondrial diseases presenting at birth and certain mitochondrial diseases presenting only between the second and the sixth decade. So really any age is an opportunity to make a diagnosis when you're seeing patients who may present with a mitochondrial dysfunction. But do children and adults necessarily present with the same symptoms when diagnosed? Typically not. Typically the childhood onset disorders are more severe, usually in a progressive nature. We sort of think of them as the tissues that need energy metabolism to the greatest degree. So if you think about the heart, the liver, the brain, and the muscles, those are the classic types of presentations that present young as opposed to adults. In adults, it can be quite variable. One of the flags that we see is anything going on with the eyes, inability to open the eyes properly, which is called ptosis. Some of that mild weakness that can affect the muscles. We can see hearing loss, we can see heart defects. So the childhood presentation of mitochondrial disease is very different from the adult onset. Is mitochondrial disease always a progressive disease that worsens with age? Typically, the definition of mitochondrial diseases are that they are progressive. There are certain single system mitochondrial diseases that tend not to be progressive. So the disorders that impact hearing, if you've lost your hearing, you've lost your hearing. So sensory neural deafness is definitely one that tends not to be progressive. What about treatments? Considering there's many types of mitochondrial disease, are there many types of treatments? I wish that were the case. Reliable therapy has yet to be identified. There are definitely research avenues where people are looking at changing outcomes for disease, but the reality is our general therapy for mitochondrial disease is more supportive. We're not fixing it. How does Dr. Basel see personalized medicine impact mitochondrial disease? I think the biggest factor that precision medicine is going to help is truly identifying what the cause is and then really rally people around them. So really having a multidisciplinary team who can take care of all the different aspects from a symptom perspective so that you're personalizing that aspect of therapy for the individual. I don't think we're anywhere close to doing precision medicine in the context of finding a particular drug that can help a particular change. But I think in the short term, it's really going to be that wraparound care that's going to benefit the patient. But he always remains optimistic for the future. I never give up hope. Is there going to be a therapy one day that can actually effectively treat some of these mitochondrial disorders? I'm not giving up on them. And I know there's some really good research that's going on at the moment. We'll hear about research next as we bring in Kayla Pierce. Thanks, Brian. Because it's actually a variable set of diseases, mitochondrial disease can be very challenging to diagnose. In fact, a medical paper was recently published which, in part, examined the lack of gold standard diagnostic testing for it. Dr. Mike Lawler is Associate Director of the Neuroscience Research Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin and co-author of the paper looking at presentation and diagnostic evaluation of mitochondrial disease. 
When we spoke with him recently, he tells us that mitochondrial disease is difficult to diagnose for a couple of key reasons. First of all, it's not necessarily standard where mitochondrial problems will present. Mitochondria are independently distributed throughout your body, and so it's possible for you to have mitochondria with poor function in parts of your body and not in other parts of your body. And so when you think about it, you can have a severe problem in your mitochondria that's only in a little bit of your body, which is going to have a mild type of symptoms, or you can have something that looks like it shouldn't be that big of a deal, but if it is widely distributed, it will have a lot of impact on your body. Another challenge is looking for signs of dysfunctional mitochondria in cells throughout the body. Really, when we look at diagnosing mitochondrial disease, we're looking for indicators of problems in multiple different organ systems that don't necessarily relate to each other very well. Things like muscles in the gastrointestinal tract and the heart or the brain. But there needs to be a lot of flexibility because the bad mitochondria might not be there. Has research discovered answers as to why mitochondria can be dysfunctional in one body part but not in others? There's two different possibilities. The mitochondria themselves are more or less derived from symbiotic bacteria very early on in evolution of eukaryotic cells. And so if you have a genetic problem related to the genes that are in your nucleus, it will cause an energy problem that could be termed a mitochondrial disease, right? But it will manifest throughout your body. Whereas if you have a problem that's associated with the genome that's in an individual mitochondrion, if that mitochondrion was derived from a very small population out of the total number that were in the egg and the sperm that you came from, then there may only be a small portion of your tissues that had mitochondria that are derived from those first bad ones. Given the difficulties in diagnosing mitochondrial disease, is it likely that it's underdiagnosed? Oh yes, definitely. And so the diagnostic setup for detecting mitochondrial disease isn't even standard across hospitals across the U.S. It's possible to have mitochondrial disease and then not have it in the tissue that has been sent for diagnostic testing, right? And so if you have bad mitochondria that happen to be distributed in your brain, but the mitochondria in your muscle are okay, then taking a muscle biopsy to evaluate for mitochondrial disease isn't going to diagnose it. Is misdiagnosis a concern? If you have a positive evidence the mitochondria are abnormal, then it gives you a very high likelihood that the problem in the mitochondria is responsible for the symptoms. And so really underdiagnosis is the problem where you can't necessarily say that the patient definitively does not have mitochondrial disease anywhere in their body based on any sort of tissue sample analysis. What about the severity level of an individual patient's symptoms? Can that contribute to the difficulty of diagnosis? Yeah, although for mitochondrial disease, you know you're dealing with heterogeneity. Right, so you know it can be presenting out of a lot of different tissues, and you know that the severity of it can be very severe or less severe. In point of fact, as with many diseases, if you have a severe case of something and it's affecting a lot of the tissues, that's not as hard to diagnose because you're more likely to run across the positive evidence of characteristic findings there. Structural problems that may not be evident in a milder case of mitochondrial disease will probably be all over the place in a severe case. And so, as with many diseases, it's more on the mild side that the diagnostic issue occurs. As Dr. Lawler mentioned, there is presently no gold standard approach for diagnosing mitochondrial disease. But why is that the case? Part of this is just that the facilities available at different hospitals aren't the same. 
the tests that you can use to assess mitochondrial abnormalities can be very difficult to perform or keep in line. And so there's not a huge number of places doing them. And it takes a fair amount of time and patience to get the result back. So then, what's the process he and his team use in diagnosing it? The approach that we have here is a combination. So I look at the skeletal muscle biopsy for characteristic abnormalities of mitochondrial structure or distribution or number. But then it's possible for mitochondria to look fine. So we also do genetic evaluations to see if the amount of mitochondrial DNA is appropriate or if that's somehow deficient or far too much and then enzymatic testing to see if all of the different complexes that allow energy to be formed are operating appropriately. And so to diagnose, we have a number of tests that all come together to affect our judgment of whether or not the specimen has any sort of disease in it. And second of all, whether or not that disease lines up with what we'd expect for a mitochondrial disease. Dr. Lawler calls it a three-strike approach of diagnosis. And while it may not be the same one used everywhere, he is confident in his team's diagnostic process. So our approach works well for us. It exceeds what I've seen at many other institutions. But we diagnose a fair number of patients with mitochondrial disease using it. What's necessary for improving diagnostic testing methods for mitochondrial disease? First, in the short term... Certainly pushing for a standardized approach is important. And long term, big picture... Some level of centralization would be good. Having the process be streamlined so that the expertise is more uniform across testing sites will improve the process. Do the complexities of diagnosing mitochondrial disease cause frustration or fuel his interest to find answers? I'd say it's a little bit of both. It's certainly frustrating that there's a lot of non-mitochondrial diseases that cause secondary problems with energy metabolism. And yet at the same time, some of the things that may improve mitochondrial disease may improve a variety of other disorders. But he's hopeful that an increased focus on it could produce more answers sooner rather than later. There is much more interest in mitochondria energy metabolism now. In the last 10 years, I've seen a lot of people become intensely interested in mitochondrial biology. Brian, let's hope that growing interest can translate into discoveries that will help improve patient outcomes. In fact, right now, we'll meet a young woman who shares that hope. Because right when she had her whole life ahead of her, her life was dramatically changed and challenged by the devastating effects of mitochondrial disease. Her name is Morgan. I'm 25 years old and my interest are the birds, bowling, and I love music. Life today for Morgan is kept pretty simple. Simple, that is, out of necessity, as she deals with a very complicated mitochondrial disease. The mito interferes with my ability to walk and be more independent and to be social. Compared to today, Morgan says as a child, teen, and during her initial adult years, her health was pretty normal, I guess. Like, there was nothing really wrong with me. Played soccer, walked and ran. Yep, so I was pretty healthy. Although she realizes now that there were symptoms of something along the way. For example, she recalls that during her high school years... I was really clumsy. 
I had a lot of bad driving experiences. I tried so hard to get my license. I tried like four or five times to drive, but I didn't get my license. Still, she says her teen years were great. She had her whole life ahead of her. I graduated high school. And then I was going to Alberno College for three years. I had a lot of good social relationships. But during college, her health changed suddenly and dramatically after she suffered a couple of seizures, the first smaller one while she was attending a party. You know, the small one, it's called an aura. An aura is a milder seizure, often a warning sign that a more significant seizure is coming. Two weeks later, it came. On that morning, her brother Cameron was sent to wake her up. I was sleeping, of course. He went upstairs to go get me, and then he saw me shaking. I didn't really know what was happening. Obviously, he did. And he knew what to do. He called 911 and had his sister rush to the hospital. Morgan remembers exactly how long she was admitted. Five weeks, yep. After weeks of tests, she eventually received news that changed her life. Morgan was diagnosed with mitochondrial disease. She recalls her initial reaction. Obviously, I was freaking out. I was crying. Because I had a boyfriend at the time, so I thought like, oh, we're gonna get married and have kids and everything's gonna be perfect. But obviously that wasn't the case. So when I had my seizures, when I literally lost everything. Today, four years after diagnosis, her disease has taken a significant toll on her physical and motor skills including speech. My walking is like really bad. Cannot walk at all. So like at this point now, I'm in a wheelchair and I have a walker. To treat her mito, Morgan has adapted to a new daily regimen, including taking lots of medications. I have medications at 8 a.m., 10 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. And because the mitochondria in her cells don't provide all the energy she needs, there's regular daily naps. I have to take a two-hour nap, especially like when I take some on my meds. The meds can make me really sleepy. But she also does workouts to stay active. I do the treadmill, the new step bike, Swimming in the pool, that's like the best treatment from Maida right now. She also works part-time. I work at the Marcus Theater ripping tickets. And she has her circle of friends who also have mitochondrial disease. Together, they support each other. My main friend is Chelsea, who lives in Minnesota. She has seizures a lot, but I always Come and say, feel better, Charles. Feel better. But she admits there are times when her disease takes an emotional toll. I feel I have no life anymore. It sucks. I'd rather be doing other stuff. Stuff like other 25-year-old young women are doing. 
One thing in particular she says she's missing out on. I want a boyfriend real bad. Like, you know, everybody wants to be married and have that significant other. So, yeah. Morgan says it's also hard to accept that her disease was passed on to her genetically by her parents. It's not their fault. And they obviously feel bad too, but I just, I feel bad of course, but it's hard because I just wouldn't be how I am today. But then Morgan's quick to point out that her family are also her biggest supporters, especially... Mom. I love my mom. She's great. Morgan's not taking her disease lying down. Instead, she advocates for increased funding of research. We go to Capitol Hill and we talk to the senators and tell them about my note. And every fall, she and her family hold their own fundraiser, Morgan's Mito March. In September, we have the walk to raise awareness. All in the hopes that someday, Morgan achieves her goals of walking. Just walking. I want to be independent, live alone. Those are the big two. But in order for that to happen, Morgan has a plea for her mitochondrial disease. Please get out of me. Please get out of me. I didn't deserve this. She certainly deserves better. That's all for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Blake Hill, Dr. Donald Basel, Dr. Michael Lawler, and special thanks to Morgan for giving us insight into her experience with mitochondrial disease. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. Make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, along with Kayla Pierce, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.